Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey back to the 80s is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Please, Bill, you're not listening to me. Kane, the crew member, Kane, who went into that ship, he said he saw thousands of eggs there. Thousands. Thank you. That'll be all. God damn it, that's not all. Because if one of those things gets down here, then that will be all. Then all this this bullshit that you think is so important, you can kiss it all goodbye. That's right, listeners. Today's movie is the 1986 sci-fi action film Aliens, starring Sigourney Weaver. Directed by James Cameron, this movie is rated R with a running time of two hours and 17 minutes. This movie was nominated for seven Academy Awards, winning two for Best Effects Sound Effects Editing and Best Effects Visual Effects. Today's episode will be a special two-part episode because there is just too much for Jason and I to discuss when talking about aliens. We couldn't do justice in one episode. Damn right. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, this would be the description you would find on the back of the VHS box. It is what's on the box. Take it away, Jason. Sigourney Weaver leads a high-tech space combat team in the stunning sequel to Alien. Sigourney Weaver returns as Ripley, the only survivor from mankind's first encounter with the alien. Her account of the alien and the fate of her crew is received with skepticism until transmissions from space colonists who have since settled on the alien's planet abruptly stop. Determined to end the recurring nightmares of her terrifying ordeal and to completely exterminate the deadly creature, Ripley joins a team of high-tech combat vets sent to investigate the disappearance of the space colonists. That's it, man. That's all we got for what's on the box, short and sweet. Wow, that really leaves a lot for us to talk about. Cool. I thought so, you were going to say that just leaves a lot to be desired. I was like, oh, that's going to be a harsh review. But no, you're right. It does leave a lot to discuss. There are two poster taglines I wanted to review with you just right from the get. Go for it. Some posters have just one. Some have both. But the taglines are, there are some places in the universe you don't go alone. And this time it's war. How do you feel about those taglines? I actually don't remember the first one. Yeah. But I do remember the war one. Right. I think that was the one that was most often printed. Yeah. But the first one, there are some places in the universe you don't go alone. I wasn't familiar with that one either. But in my research, I kept coming across it. I'm like, you know, it's just hard. It's hard to compare to that first one from Alien. Yeah. No one can hear you scream in space. Oh, yeah. It's just one of the best taglines of all time, in my opinion. Yeah. It's hard to top it. And I think they were kind of making an attempt with like, there are some places in the universe you don't go alone. Which I was like, is that alluding to the fact that she goes with a combat team with a group of Marines? Or is it just trying to say, you know, you just don't want to go by yourself into the scary, dark universe? I don't know. And then with the this time it's war, I was like, is this, does that mean they're declaring war on the aliens this time? Or the aliens declared war on the humans? That's true. That's not technically a war. No. I'm sorry. I just, I don't, I was just thrown off by those taglines because they sound serious. Like they sound like good movie poster taglines, but I'm going, 
are these really appropriate for the movie itself? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, man, I, I'm just glad to be here on this podcast discussing this movie with you, Bill Bant. Did you want to get right into the uh, first segment? Yeah. So uh, let's move on to our earliest memories of the film. Jason, what is your earliest memories of Aliens? I'm going to take it back just a, a bit here because, first of all, I appreciate your your dramatic <laughs> reading of Aliens. Thank it's you. It's almost, almost as good as Quaid. I'm um, not going there right now. Oh, yeah. Right oh, now. yeah. <laughs> so I remember when I was young, my dad, he was a fan of films, of course, and uh, I'm thankful that he's always been supportive of my fandom for all things movies. And this is just like on a side note, he told me when I was very young that he had seen a really scary movie. And I was like, wow, I just wasn't, you know, as a young person, hadn't watched a lot of scary movies. I wasn't into the horror genre as a child. And I was like, what's this? movie that scared the bejesus out of my dad and my dad for anyone that knows and for those are about to know uh he's six foot four a very kind of a man's man he's big guy like a gentle giant but uh not much scares him so i was like what i was curious what's this movie he's like ah you know i don't even remember that much i just remember that it was about an alien and he he gets like blown out of an airlock at the end and he's like swinging around and you can see like he's looking in the window of this that like spaceship and it was the freakiest thing. And it was just, it just scared the heck out of me. And I was like, and then he told me, well, that was the name of the movie, Alien. I was like, wow, okay, well, uh, I missed that one. But when I was in eighth grade, so this has got to be now 87, 88, I'm about 12 years old. One of my classmates, Eric, invited me over for a sleepover. And he had aliens, plural, on VHS, which was incredible for me. They were like, I'm going to get to see this movie because the word of mouth had spread. Uh, it was a box office hit uh, that summer of 86. And now it's a couple of years later and I get to watch it on a sleepover. So the first time I saw this film bill was on VHS in my, my buddy's basement. And after that was my first exposure to an adult film, as it turns out, <laughs> just <laughs> little TMI, but that it was just a, one of those things. Uh, so it was a little, uh, little aliens and then a little soft core porn after that. And, uh, I was a man. That's, uh, that's when I became a man. That's a combo. combo. (laughs) I thought it, I thought we'd open this podcast with that little tidbit. So I saw aliens before alien aliens, 1986, before the original film, Alien from 1979. And this is my introduction to the Aliens universe. And boy, what an introduction it was. You know, I remember watching the film and being, you know, scared shitless when the cocooned colonist wakes up and the chestburster comes out of it. It just, it just blew my mind, scared the hell out of me. The scene in the medical bay scared the hell out of me with the face huggers. Uh, I had nightmares about face huggers after that. The original soundtrack by James Horner blew me away. I bought that on cassette immediately. I listened to that at, at nauseum. Then afterward, I got the home computer game. 
I mean, playing the Aliens home computer game on the Apple IIe, multiple levels. You're on the Sulaku dropship. You're running around uh, the atmosphere uh, processor and you're shooting up aliens and then you got to battle the queen at the end. It was a terrible game looking back upon it, but I was so immersed in that universe at that point. I loved playing that, just staying up late on summer nights on my Apple IIe. If you want to look at the gameplay, look it up on YouTube. Just look on, go on YouTube, search aliens for the Apple II. Aliens for the Apple IIe or Apple II. I got aliens memorabilia programs, posters. Uh, I mean, one of my earliest memories was summer during high school when it finally hit HBO. I watched that damn movie on repeat, knew every single line. I wanted, so desperately wanted to own the M41A pulse rifle, 10 millimeter over and under with a 30 millimeter pump action grenade launcher. That's right. I would have gone for one of the other huge guns that Vasquez and Drake are carrying on an operator harness mount. That's the M56 smart gun. That's right. I wanted all the the weaponry tech. I mean, it was just, it was just the coolest. Now, I remember always trying to get all the crew members straight. Like I memorized all their names. I, I knew who was who and what their role was. You can't go wrong with Hudson. Come on. The most quotable character in the film. I'm going nuts. Uh, I, that's all my friends did. And I, my friends and I would just quote Hudson all the time. Game over, man. It's game over, man. 17 days. We're going to last 17 hours, man. My One of my favorites. I mean, come on. Stop your grin and drop your linen. I would say that all the time. Half people didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Look, Bishop, the synthetic, so cool. All of the sound design. I mean, these are early memories that I, whenever I think of the movie, these are the things I think of. And the hiss from the flamethrower, the hiss from the alien. Though, of course, the most iconic line, get away from her, you bitch. The H.R. Geiger design of the alien is just one of the most impressive things. One of the things that's been most impressed upon my imagination, Bill is the alien creature design. That's amazing. And then Stan Winston takes it to the next level in this film. And the inner jaw or tongue jaw, as it's known, uh, the acid for the blood. The, you know, I'm going over all the, the details here, man, but these are all the images that pop into my head. And then as a result, I saw Alien afterward. So now Alien, you know, in conjunction with this film. And... Having been a Star Wars kid for a handful of years then at this point, this took me in a different direction with my imagination. It, it took me to another place in my imagination, like a darker, mysterious place because of the genre change. Because it goes from, for me, from fantasy science fiction to now this science fiction, thriller, action, horror genre. And new mythology and lore that was introduced to me through this sequel, uh, which is one of the best things about the sequel is how it really does enhance the mythology and lore of this story. And it just made me love movies even more. So that's what I've got for my, my earliest memories, man. How about you? So aliens came out in the summer of 86. And once it came out, I just remember it's all over the place. And as a family, you know, we would go on vacation basically at the end of the summer, like the last two weeks up until Labor Day. And they used to have these movie theaters on the boardwalk where we would go. We'd go down to the Wildwoods, called the Wildwoods. And it was always great because whatever they were playing at that time, you knew it was the biggest movie of the summer because they were like these just single uh, theaters. 
And I just remember just walking out and you just see aliens and mm-hmm. you just see the posters, Gourney Weaver um, holding on to um, Newt on the poster. Oh, yeah. And I did not want to see it because I had seen part of Alien. I hadn't seen the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember how much it scared the crap out of me. I had seen maybe about 60% of the movie. The first chest bursting scene. Right. I remember the scene with Dallas in the corridor. And you just see the alien literally jump out for just a couple of frames. And I did see the ending. So I knew how it ended. So I knew how I was going in. So, oh, man, I was a pussy. I was not going to go see this in, in the theater. Oh, I understand. Yeah. So I remember one day my mom comes home and she's like, oh, look what I rented. And she had rented Aliens. And I was like, oh, man, I don't know if I want to watch it. <laughs> I'll be honest. I was scared. about. I was, I was sure. scared. And I was kind of like, oh, she's like. I'll just watch it myself because I know she had seen it because that's how I'd seen it before. Like my parents had watched it at home and I was like, all right, now I'll I'll watch it. And I specifically remember it was a Friday night because at that point my dad was working Friday. So it was just my mom, me and my brother and sister. The funny thing is I can't remember where my brother and sister were because they were definitely too young to watch this film. And my mom made dinner for us and we were watching it tv dinner style and i just remember oh, yeah. like having my dinner in front of me and it was friday night so friday nights we always did fish sticks and mac and cheese yes <laughs> so was the, thursday was night the, was our tv dinner night that's okay funny. yeah we yeah and i remember thinking to myself like am i gonna throw up watching this movie trying to eat this at the same time just thinking it's just gonna be chest explosion after chest explosion after chest explosion right right and then you know, there's that opening scene with Sigourney Weaver where you think the aliens go chest burst. And I'm like, oh man. And I think I watched the rest of the movie like on the floor. And we had like one of these oversized pillow things. And I'm literally just like hugging it, just watching this movie. Like, all right, don't, don't act scared in front of your mom. We're trying to try, you know, don't be a bitch. Uh, <laughs> but once it got going, I just loved it. Yeah. But yeah, even that one scene when they when they go to the colony and they find that one woman and she opens her eyes, that like scared. That's the that's the moment I was kind of referring to. It's yeah. that actual moment when she opens her eyes because you get the, the the music cue on top of that by James Horner, oh, yeah. and you put those two things together, and it yeah scared the hell out of me. Yeah, and just like you, Hudson, just his transformation to like pussy to like badass. How he goes out, right? Burke's demise, which. It's cool because, you know, we got to see this in a theater a couple of years ago. And, it was, and I was really excited just for that scene, just to see how everyone was going to react. And of course, everyone but freaking, applauds. Yeah, yeah. yeah, everyone applauds and went nuts. And it was crazy, too, because I knew who Paul Reiser was from Beverly Hills Cop and being a stand up comedian because I was really into stand up comedy then. And it was just weird seeing him play a dick because right. he had, I guess, per se, good comedy, kind of like a Jerry Seinfeld so to see him play against type was kind of interesting to me. And mm-hmm. then Bishop getting ripped apart and you're just like, oh man, this is crazy. But yeah, I stuck it out and, you know, watched it with my mom there uh, that Friday night. And that's great. It's definitely one of my top 10 of the eighties. Oh, easily. Yeah. I, I love it, Bill. That's great. And I couldn't agree more. Like it is a game changer. Oh yeah. This movie was a game changer. No doubt. No doubt about it. I wish I had seen it on the big screen. I love the fact that you're, you were being honest about being a little bit timid about seeing it for the first time. And I couldn't agree more. I was as well because you knew it was kind of going to be this scary movie, but it turns out it's a little bit more action. 
Yeah. It's more of an action thriller. It's a sci-fi action film. It's not a horror film in the classic sense. I feel the first film alien was a bit more on the horror side, but aliens tends out to be this roller coaster ride and it's exciting. It's exciting. Once this train leaves the station, you're just on it. And you're like, I don't want this to end. This is cool. And it is a violent film. No question about it. And there are some graphically violent sections when you talk about Bishop getting ripped in half, but we understand he's a synthetic artificial person slash Android. Right. And so it's not quite the same as seeing a real person getting torn in half. And even, you know, watching it again, the gore, it's there, but it's not overly graphic. They'll either cut away or it's a blood splatter on a windshield, or it's just the aliens themselves being exploded by gunfire. It wasn't as gory as some of the films have gotten later on, or even if you've read any of the graphic novels or stuff, it can get pretty hardcore. This was just more kind of based in action. So I think uh, that's what enabled me as a 12-year-old to be able to get through the movie without uh, pissing my pants. Yeah. Yeah, just one of the things I want to mention, because I said in the beginning that the movie was nominated for uh, seven Academy Awards. I mentioned the two that it won. So the other five that it was nominated for was uh, Best Actress in a Leading Role for Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, which was huge Uh, at the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, So then also for Best Art Direction, uh, Set Decoration. Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and Best Music Original Score. So that was the other five it was nominated for. Yeah, deserved deserved every nomination. Oh, yeah. And then uh, just the other interesting thing uh, about this movie, uh, the director, uh, James Cameron. This is only his third feature film. You know, the one before that was uh, a big surprise uh, sleeper hit, uh, The Terminator. Heard of it? Yeah. And because of that film, he was offered to direct and uh, he wrote, co-wrote this uh, script too. So yeah. Yeah. Kudos to him. And just, yeah, I think one of the amazing things too, especially watching this time is, and I can see why it got nominated for best art direction because you look at the budget it was only, it was under $20 million and every dollar is on that screen. I'm just watching this. I'm like, damn, how the hell did they do all this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The design is impeccable. It's incredible. I mean, it's, to- I mean, you're watching it and I'm just completely immersed in this universe. Mm-hmm. Every detail, the production design, the art design, everything from the ships to the creatures to once they go into the sub levels underneath the, uh, atmosphere processor i mean that transition when they just make they start walking into the aliens lair yes it's still i mean you can see it in your mind's eye i I, it's just like nothing you'd seen before so it's just like the characters walking in they're, they're just like what is this like this is truly alien and but you're right i mean just the attention to detail they're not small sets no no Because I'm even like, all right, even if they're reusing corridors, they still have that one shot where they first are attacked. And you can see it's like a sub-level, and it doesn't look like a matte painting or anything like that. I'm like, right, everything looks practical. Yeah, Yeah, it looks practical. And just all the stuff they have along the floor. And I was just so fascinated watching this time. Like, what is the process for the aliens to make this? hive the way they do how do they how do they create this i have that in my notes bill i'm glad you brought that up because that that was going to be one of my questions is 
when I talk about the mythology, the lore, right? We what's wonderful about that there is so much mystery attached to the aliens. I want to know more about them. They're the villain, but they're absolute. This creature is absolutely fascinating, and just that layer itself, the hive, the cocoons. How do they do that? How does it? How do they? I would love to see the aliens, you know, making a cocoon. Mm-hmm. Where, how does that come about? How is all of this created? And the questions are endless because you could go down a rabbit hole just trying, you know, ask questions like, how do they do this, that, and the other thing? But they only give you little tidbits here and there. And you can, you know, you can get into the the nerd stuff, which I love too, and just research online. And there's probably, you know, a lot of answers for these things that people have come up with and either from novels or uh, graphic novels, et cetera. But, you know, back to that design and, you know, there's a lot of the lighting effects as well and the use of the uh, helmet cam. Yes. And you're seeing it a lot through gritty uh, video footage, really smart filmmaking from every aspect. And this is why it's, des- you know, all those Academy Award nominations are deserved in every, almost every category because you know, that's the magic of filmmaking. When you talk about James Cameron, who's a perfectionist and obviously knows what he wants and is very uh, specific and demanding when it comes to what he wants. And if you do the research on this particular production, he had difficulty because he came in being regarded as a bit of a novice, only having Piranha 2 and Terminator under his belt. And then he comes in on this and he's in England on Pinewood Studios. And the crew is like, we don't respect you. But the guy knew his shit. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, he knows his shit. And he's like, I want it lit this way. And they're like, no, 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 no. This is how you want it. And then he has to fire him and everybody's pissed and they got to shut it down. And all of a sudden, you know, but you can see it when you watch it. You're like. This is genius. Yes. And you could make the argument as James Cameron himself did saying, why would you want to make a sequel to a perfect film? He gives Ridley Scott and Alien all the credit in the world for being a wonderful sci-fi horror film, a perfect film unto itself. And then he makes this, which is genius on every level, down to, again, coming back to the production design. In that particular sequence, when the colonial Marines are going to find the colonists on the sub-level, every detail, when they walk in and the atmosphere changes from just the stairwells and what looks like a lot of gratings and things like that to this alien, I mean, how would you even describe it, Bill? I mean, to somebody who can't see it. Yeah, it's almost like you're in... It's almost like they converted steel into caves. But it has something that's a very alive about it, too, at the same time. And you can tell if you were to touch it, you would think it would be a little bit, you know, it's covered in some sort of, they talk about the secreted resin. Obviously, it would, there'd probably be something sticky on it or whatever, but it's, yeah, it's, they tell you how hot it is. It's humid. It's moist. Looks really cool at the same time. And things are dripping all over the place. Like you just get a sense of the humidity in that area. And then when you see the colonists in their cocoons, it's morbid, it's scary, it's disgusting on a level. And you just want to know more. Yeah. Real credit to the art design and uh, production design. Yeah. Because even the scene when they first get into the base and it's just the corridors and just how all that is laid out and... You can see that they had the remnants of the battle because then there's the holes from where the aliens died. The acid goes through and they're and they're checking out all the rooms. And I'm just like, 
Jesus Christ, how, how much of this does they actually build? Or how many times have they had to repeat this and reset this, these rooms or these hallways? Oh, yeah. It's just the detail is just amazing. And just how they hold the colonists had to wall up the or try to seal off the doors so they wouldn't get in. And I'm always fascinated by the one scene where they go to that one guy's office and it's the desk and the water's pouring down on it. And it's yep. got the, the bit the donut. donut. Yeah. Yeah. And then the cup of coffee and, and the water keeps pouring into that cup. Right. It's just a, a little thing, but I always remember it. I just always notice that thing. It's just all that attention to the detail that they put into this film that maybe throw away moments, but it's just amazing that they thought to put that moment in the movie. And that's just what makes it great. You always just catch a little, a little something that you see or, or catch while this is going on. It's funny that you, yeah, you brought up the image of the donut and the coffee cup like on that table. Cause that's something that stuck with me for whatever reason over all of these years, that image always sticks with me. And it's part of, the fact that you arrive, you know, these Marines, along with Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, arrive on the scene, and immediately the question is, what happened here? Yes. People existed here once, but they are no longer here. So what happened? It becomes a mystery. Let's put together the pieces. Let's figure this out. And just looking around, something catastrophic and traumatic clearly happened but they don't know what it was yet. They have an inkling. They have an idea according to what Ripley has endured previous to this. They're just walking around. It's just, it inspires the imagination. It it just gets your wheels turning, the imagination going. You start asking yourself questions. Oh my God, somebody was here at this desk and didn't even finish his donut. What happened to him? Right. And even when it makes a scare too, because there's no signs of anything, you know, it's not like you see blood anywhere. So you're like, okay, did they get killed? What happened to them? There's no sign of any of these creatures either. It's just destruction. So yeah. just like, what the hell happened? You know, just since we're on the, the subject of art design, uh, production design, it's a credit to, you know, this is a funny thing, bringing up my dad again, whenever we watch the end credits of the film and he sees the scroll and it's just numerous hundreds and hundreds of people. He's like, Jay, Jay, does it really take all these people to make this movie? And the answer is yes. Yes, it does. And when you see a film like Aliens and why it sells, why it engages and inspires my imagination and why I'm in hook, line and sinker and I want to know everything about the universe is that attention to detail. And so it's a credit to every single crew member that works on a scene like that because you are absolutely right, Bill. Can you imagine them on Pinewood Studios, on the studio lot, putting together just one hallway? And before the cameras roll, before the actual actors are on set, all of the people that are on there painting or touching up or making sure everything's in the right place, this is going to be, you know, water's dripping over here. The donut's got to be set on here, over here, and everything's got to be in its right place. And there's so many, but it has to look real. It has to look lived in. Like people were here and an explosion, an attack, an assault had occurred and we have to make the audience believe that there's something really happened here and that people once lived here, but they have vanished. And immediately when you see a bad movie, Bill, you know, because of the lack of attention of detail Yeah, in the hands of a, a lesser professional, Yes, you know, but not in the case of James Cameron, you're no. not going to get any, any, you're not, you're not going to be short on detail. No, not at so. all. 
for the listeners out there that's not that aren't familiar as much with the, the Alien franchise, I mean, the basic story is that you know Sigourney Weaver plays Ellen Ripley, whom uh, was the member of a crew on a ship that was attacked by a singular and unique alien life form that they had picked up off this alien planet. Uh, she was part of a cargo ship, and the the horror of it is that this alien kills off the crew one by one and she has to fend for herself and and manages to kill the alien herself and survives the traumatic event only to put herself into deep sleep into a lifeboat or a life ship and she gets lost in space basically and that's where the sequel picks up as her ship is picked up but it's now 57 years later and uh, she's been in deep sleep or hypersleep for the entire time and now she finds out that this company has uh, colonized this planet known as LV-426, where she had been, where they picked up the alien originally 57 years previous. And this planet is now colonized and uh, they're terraformers and the colony has disappeared. The colonists are MIA and she knows what probably happened. It's the alien. So the company gets the Marine, uh, the colonial Marine force to uh, join Ripley because she has some knowledge of this alien to get back down to LV-426 to see what happened to these colonists. And that's what we are talking about is that initial, when they get to the the uh, actual building, nobody's there. What the hell happened? It's just cool. It's just really cool. It's scary as hell. Yeah. And even the model for that, I saw a picture of it. I didn't realize how big that model was. That was like a three foot tall model. So just to work on just doing that alone. And the only time you see it maybe a handful of times where the drop ship comes down the first time and circles it, and then maybe a shot or two once they land. And I know there's a couple of shots when they show the processor when they're, mm-hmm. when they're locked in, but I'm just like, oh you're just God. talking about the, the scale, the, the sheer yeah. scope of the complex itself, oh, yeah. the colony itself. Yeah. It's huge. It is. Yeah. And I thought it was like a, a tenth size, you know, your little tiny like train model that you would normally see. But no, it, it's like a three foot tall model and takes up. Oh, sure. A basketball gym size. That's how big right. that thing is. And I was just like, holy shit. It's only in a series of shots. It's not like it's a, a big thing. But don't you think that makes all the difference in the world, Bill? Oh, yeah. I mean, it really does. And I mean, and I am truly old school like that when it comes to miniatures and practical effects versus the CGI. CGI has come a long way. It's oh, yeah. truly made. Speaking of James Cameron himself. Oh yeah. Avatar. One of the pioneers. That's all you have to say. I mean, there you go. It's come so far. And if you see a film like Avatar in the in the theater and IMAX and you you'll be truly blown away. And it has its place, but the three-dimensional aspect of it in my humble opinion still hasn't been perfected with CGI. When you look at these models, and I had a friend of mine who was a regular at the restaurant where I waited tables who actually did miniatures in Hollywood for some time. And then he went on to work independently and sell pieces. And I went to his gallery and it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, man. Back to the attention to detail, these miniatures and everything, like they just, it was the real thing, but just one sixteenth the size of, you know, it, it was like a street scene or whatever. But then you talk about the atmosphere processors and this colony you know, and you say they build a three foot tall model that somebody had to build that. Somebody had to paint it. Somebody had to 
put it together and add all the details for, like you said, like a handful of shots that are actually used in the movie. But when you see it on the screen, I'm going, oh, that's an actual place. That's a place on a planet. I buy it, hook, line, and sinker. I'm in. I can tell that's not in a, a, a CG effect. That's a real place. How the hell did they do that? Well, somebody built it, you know, <laughs> and it uh, takes an artist to do it. So I think as artists ourselves, we just have a healthy respect for it. Yeah. And I mean, there is bad miniatures in movies. Just oh, like no doubt. Bad CGI. But yeah, if they do a miniature right, yeah, I'll take a miniature over CGI any day. Yeah. Yeah, I'm old school on that. Should we move on to our favorite scenes and try not to talk about the whole movie? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I may, yeah, I may go back to some of the, my other uh, general commentary, but since we're spreading this podcast into two parts, I may indulge a little more on my commentary. But yes, absolutely. Let's go into favorite scenes, Bill. All right. Uh, you want to go first? Sure. I'm going to uh, go right to the very scene we were just breaking down. And that's when the Colonial Marines, I believe it's the United States Colonial Marine Corps. The Colonial Marines, along with Ripley, uh, I should say, actually, initially, the Colonial Marines go into the uh, colony to find that the colonists have vanished. And there's evidence that there was, you know, a fight uh, had been put up by the colonists. They were defending themselves against an outside force. They had barricaded the doors. They had um, used weapons, explosives, whatnot. A battle had taken place, but they are gone. And the Marines just go down to sub-level three and move into what becomes known as the, you know, the alien hive slash lair, where they find our colonists whom are cocooned. And this is not a good thing. And they come upon one colonist. And she is still alive. And it's one of the scariest moments in the film. And by the way, Bill Bantz, this is when we first see the aliens in the movie. Oh, yeah. The reveal is awesome. And guess how far we are into the movie? I don't remember. One hour. It's an hour into this film before we even see an alien. Wow. Isn't that incredible? The setup in this film is brilliant. That keeps you engaged the whole time. Up to this point, we have not yet seen an alien, and it's an hour into the movie. Now, the movie is two hours and 17 minutes long, but still. So they go in, and we get to see this horrific sequence of this poor woman, this colonist, who is still alive, and uh, she has an alien inside of her. So the alien has been gestating inside of her, and it's known as the chest burster, meaning this baby alien bursts out of her chest. She dies. They use their, the Marines use their flamethrowers, kill the alien. And this scene, man, is just awesome because it is the introduction of the aliens in the movie. We've got such building tension. We've got tech. We've got, the, like we had mentioned, the secreted resin. The, the production design, art design in this is incredible because it just looks so foreign. It truly looks alien uh, in that they're in these weird tunnels that have clearly that have a natural feel about like the aliens had constructed them themselves. And there are great storytelling uh, devices in this scene. We've got the motion trackers. We've got uh, the fact that they can't use their weapons because if they use their weapons, they're going to set off an explosion. The atmosphere processor is going to go ballistic and that's not good. Uh, We have the great scare with the poor colonists and the chest burster. I mentioned flamethrowers now because they use the flamethrowers to, 
kill the chestburster. This has awakened the aliens, which are all like camouflaged and sleeping in the fucking walls. Yes. It's insane. It's so fucking cool. Like, I can't get enough of it. And credit to, again, H.R. Geiger, who did the original creature design, but also Stan Winston here and all of these stunt performers that are inside these alien creature suits. The way that this hive that Bill was talking about earlier is designed, the aliens are camouflaged within the walls. So you would never know that they were there. And so they're basically hibernating at this point. And when the Marines enter, they don't haven't made enough noise to wake them up, basically, or create enough commotion. Once they kill a baby alien, this chest burster, then all hell breaks loose. And another great device they use is the video cam on the Marines' helmets. So the tension, tension, tension builds. Not only do you have the great production art design, but we have wonderful sound design. You can hear the drip, drip, drip. The use of silence in this movie is so powerful. The quiet moments, because then when the the music cue comes in and the scare comes in, it's all the more impactful. And this all happens in this scene. And you get the aliens start kind of unfurling, like they uncurl. They come out of the walls and they're crawling on the walls and they're grabbing the Marines from behind and yanking them up into the air. And you just hear screams. You see it from the video cam footage, you know, the motion trackers, you're hearing them approaching. All the Marines are going nuts. And then at the same time, you see Ripley and Gorman, who's like the Marine leader on the APC, the all all personnel carrier looking at watching this all unfold and they're freaking out. So then you've got, so this is the first time we see the aliens, huge uh, action sequence. They decide to fire their weapons regardless. There's aliens exploding everywhere. The aliens have acid for blood. There's acid flying everywhere. Half the team dies. I get, wrote this out. We get Dietrich, Crow, Frost, Apone, Drake, Verzbausmer. Where's Bowski? Where's Bowski? They all die in the scene. Yes. All of them in this sort of attack. Fucking brutal. Uh, they get back to the APC and, uh, you know, you get the alien almost gets in the doors at the last second. Hicks gives the alien the shotgun treatment right in the mouth. Eat this. That's my first favorite scene, man. Oh, that's a great one, too. I mean, I literally remember when they burn that baby alien and you see the first one move. I just did one of those. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. It was just so cool because you did not see it at all. And Mm-mm. I was like, oh, they're in trouble. They're in deep shit. And you knew. You, you knew there's there so many guys. of them. Yeah. And I mean, you know, these are supposed to be badass Marines, but you just knew them like they're going to get their asses kicked right now. They're in deep trouble. They're just they're out of their element in this. They This is the welcome to the jungle kind of thing, right? I mean, they yeah. literally walked into the jungle. They walked into somebody else's backyard, into an alien environment. What they don't have any business being in, and it's completely foreign. So they're on somebody else's turf, and they done fucked up because it's the worst turf you could ever imagine yourself being on. I mean, literally, it's the worst. Mm-hmm. There's that great shot of one of the Marines. I don't know if it's Dietrich or whomever it was, but you see her looking around and behind her, you don't even realize that the alien is in the background until it kind of comes out of the wall. Like, and then it yeah. literally grabs her from behind and yanks her up. And you're like, well, they're fucked. That's it. You guys are done because yeah. you don't understand 
what you're up against. You have no understanding of what these things are. And that's the cool aspect. Again, that lends, it's the mystery of it. You don't know what their motivation is, what how they operate. You're just in there with your machine guns and they're, you can kill some, but they're just going to keep coming. Yeah. And it's crazy too, because if you had seen the first one, you were only dealing with one and now you're dealing with a whole group of them and just to see how they work together to wipe out these Marines. Well, that's what I was going to get into as well with my side commentary. And we can talk about this really quick in the middle of our favorite scenes, Bill, is what was brilliant about James Cameron taking this upon himself. Wouldn't you put this up here as probably one of the best sequels of all time? Yes. And in many ways, the traditional, that gets the full on sequel treatment, meaning like everything has to be uh, bigger and better, right? I mean, it follows the sequel playbook to a T you have, because you just said an alien, it's one alien. Now I'm a huge fan of that. I like the less is more. I love the first film. I have, I mean, I adore it. I mean, we'll get into that discussion, which is better the first or second. We'll get into that later, Mm -hmm. but this follows the sequel playbook. We, so we get more aliens, right? Yes. That's first thing. We need more aliens. You get a bigger, badder crew. You get a tougher crew, right? Better tech, bigger guns, we get a next generation synthetic. So we upgrade from Ash to Bishop in this movie. We get bigger explosions, more violence, bigger and better special effects. The scope enlarges, right? But what was smart that Cam- what Cameron did was he changed this into a, an action movie, like almost a war movie, like in a way where it's, it feels like, a, I guess, a war movie in a way, but uh, it respects the original. Yes. He still stuck to the lore and he paid homage to the original in so many clever ways and just made it better. It didn't take away from it or degrade or lessen the effect of the, the original film. It just really took it to the next level. Mm-hmm. And in a way too, it's, it's a standalone because like you said, you did not see the first one. Right. Yeah. But you were able to watch this one and not like, well, what happened? What, what's this person all tied in? They take care of that for you early on in the movie. So you have an understanding that if you've not seen this, you can still watch this movie and be okay. Absolutely right. And I think because we talked about the first hour of this film really being set up for uh, what's to come here. And there is a lot of referring to the original film because you have Ripley trying to tell what are they, the insurance people in that conference room, that great scene which should be in my favorite. I don't know why I didn't put it in my first favorite scene, but yeah, she's talking to the company and they're trying to figure out why the hell she put the Nostromo on self-destruct. She tries to explain to them that there was an alien on board that was foreign. And if you had not seen Alien, that this would still work because all I would want to do is like, in which I, what I did want to do is go back and see the first movie. Cause I'm like, what is she talking about? This sounds cool. Like that sounds really scary. Something awful happened to her and she survived the event. And now she's coming to them, begging them to respect the fact that there's this uh, vicious alien out in the universe that's completely unknown and we need to do something about it. It's smart filmmaking because this film does stand alone. um, And only if anything, what makes you want to go back to the original and watch that one? Yeah. So my first favorite scene is um, I'll just say it's the nightmare. Oh, yeah. So in the beginning You're of the movie. starting at the very beginning, of yeah, course. Yeah, almost at the very Good beginning. Good call. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so at the beginning of the film, Ripley's ship gets picked up. 
by these scavengers and they realize they find her in there. So they can't lay claim to the ship. So they have to return her. So the first time we see Ripley awake is at the space station orbiting earth medicals talking to her, you know, cause she has a nightmare, you know, they're asking how she's doing and in comes from Paul Reiser who plays Burke, who works for the company. And Burke basically tells her, fills in the in the gaps for the audience and for her that she's been adrift for 57 years they were lucky to find her and then all of a sudden oh they brings her cat back jones from the first one who's a big plot yeah jonesy was a big plot point for uh the first film and then all of a sudden sigourney weir starts going she starts feeling her her chest and then Mm -hmm. this is when i started freaking out watch it the first time like oh my god she's got an alien in her it's awful yeah the medical it looks so the thing about that, Bill, is the just the whole chestburster thing, which was so freaky in the first film. But if you hadn't seen it again, you see it here in this nightmare sequence. It looks so fucking painful. That's exactly. the thing. It's like you put yourself in the person's shoes and you're like, if that had, was happening to me, that's why what makes that scarier to me every time, Bill, is when the person it's happened to basically says, kill me, kill me. Oh, yeah. Just kill me. Yes. Because... This thing is going to bust out. of It's going to break your ribs. ribs. And uh, please keep going. Sorry. And you find out it's a nightmare and she wakes up and she's just all sweaty. And then the medical, the medical comes back on again. And it's like, oh, having still having nightmares. So you find out she's actually been there for a couple of days. But as the audience, you have found out what's going on to that point. And that's what I, I kind of liked about it because it was that. Usually the nightmare scene is usually kind of a cheap scare tactic, but for here it really worked because you were getting information on what you needed to know in order to move the story forward. And that's what I liked about it. I agree. Just a quick homage to the first film. Right. So that was, that was my first favorite scene. Cause it, it did get me. It did get me the first time I was like, Oh shit. Like rationally, you're like, wait, you're going to kill her this early in the movie. Right. But, um, no, it still got me. I thought, I thought she had an alien in her stomach. Yeah. It's and, creepy. Uh, I'm still trying to eat my dinner at that point. Yeah. So uh, what do you got for uh, your next favorite scene? Well, you know what? I'm, I'm adding this. I'm going, I'm going to improv uh, and just go back to the conference room scene with the company, because I think, you know, we're talking about just really quality filmmaking here. Just if we're going to break down the scenes from beginning to end, it is hard to not do the whole movie because again, it's just the way it's crafted from that opening nightmare sequence to the way that information is doled out and it's expositional, but it's subtle and impactful, sometimes not so subtle. And in this particular scene, she's basically being debriefed as to what had happened. And the scene literally opens with her in this conference room with these bureaucrats at a table and she's standing looking at a display and they're scrolling through her previous crew members. And this had been 57 years ago on this giant cargo ship called the Nostromo, where she and her crew members were attacked by this alien. And she's seeing the photos of these crew members whom she was close with, whom all lost their lives. And that's kind of how it kind of opens where she's just staring at them. And then the scene unfolds and it's kind of like, they're kind of, trying to pin this on her and she is trying to explain to them what had happened because they're trying to put together the pieces too, because a $42 million ship had been 
destroyed because she put it on self-destruct in order to kill this thing. And she's like, you don't understand. This thing is dangerous and you need to find out what it is or where it is. And they kind of, she kind of lets them have it. And that was the quote I was using from the opening of our podcast tonight. It's like, no, God damn it. That isn't all because if this thing gets down here, meaning earth, then that is all meaning that's the end. And I love the writing here, Bill, because in this scene, because it goes quiet, but then she gets loud because she credit to Scorny Weaver. She fucking owns this shit. You don't fuck with Ripley. She controls and commands every scene she's in. Sigourney Weaver has presence, no doubt physical presence. She's taller than most of the men. She's got to be at least six feet, like 5'11", six feet tall. She's beautiful, but she's so strong. And in this scene in particular, when she's always trying to express exactly how serious the scene is, how gravely serious it is, that how dangerous this thing is, and you believe it. As a viewer, you're like, oh, wow, I haven't even seen this thing. I don't know what she's talking about, but I think they should listen to her. And the level of danger, uh, the stakes kind of rise just from her performance alone. So in this scene, it's quite simple. It goes back and forth. And she just basically tells them that this creature obviously was dangerous, killed her whole crew. She says, has anybody, you know, at least what she asks about the planet LV426. Is there anyone down there? And there's, well, yeah, there's been people there for years and they haven't mentioned anything. She's like, what are you talking about? And they say, there's terraformers down there that have been living down there, creating these atmosphere processors that cleans the air. It takes decades. They've been living there for years. She's like, how many? And he says, uh, 60, 70 families. And it's that great moment where she just quietly says, families. Jesus. And because we know as audience members that that's no bueno, all these people are going to die. Yeah. You're like, I hope they colonize the other side of the planet. (laughs) I really hope they start on the other side of the planet and don't come across the spaceship or they're in deep shit. So the reason why I picked this scene is because of the, again, the setup, the quality writing where because of her performance, and I think if it were in the hands of someone not quite as talented as her, it could come off a little bit cheesy. It doesn't. She brings some a certain gravitas to this. And you understand the seriousness of the situation. Uh, uh, yeah, I like that scene. And uh, by the way, Sigourney Weaver is uh, six foot one inch. I didn't realize she was that tall. Yeah, I was like, Holy that God. makes sense. So that definitely makes a lot of sense with her intimidating presence. Mm-hmm. So my next favorite scene is basically finding out Bishop is an Android. (laughs) Hell yeah. So there's a scene, the Marines go out to LV 426 and they wake up from their hypersleep and they're all in the cafeteria and they're eating and they're all joking around, you know, how they're going to kick some ass and all this kind of stuff and uh, make it with some colonist girls. And all of a sudden Hudson played by Bill Paxton asked Bishop to do the knife thing. Of course, we don't know what the knife knife thing is. Right. And he, he hands Bishop his knife. Bishop does, you know, a little quick, cute little twirl on it and goes to put his hand down the table. And then one of the other Marines literally puts Hudson's hand down first. And he's freaking out because, I mean, he's seen this before, but he's, he's still scared about it. And then Bishop puts his hand on it and takes the knife and literally just goes in between his fingers like, rapid fire kind of thing. And it's a really cool scene. And you just see 
Hudson just like whoa, yeah, just <laughs> basically basically shit his pants there in the cafeteria, right? And then he goes to sit down with Ripley and Burke and Gorman, and you see that he actually nicks himself from the knife, and out comes the white android liquid, and Sigourney Weaver totally freaks out. And if you had seen Alien, Ash, I guess you know, Android is always with a crew. And Ash basically, in a way, almost turned on the crew of the Nostromo and made sure that this alien came on the ship because the company wanted this alien on the ship to explore it and maybe use it for weapons technology. So now, as an audience member, you're like, oh, man, is Bishop going to be another Ash? Mm -hmm. And Ripley's already skeptical. And now, even as an audience member, you're kind of like, oh, which way is he going to go? And Lance Henriksen... God, he was perfect for that because he oh, has yeah. that look where you don't know which way he is going to go because you know, he makes that comment of, oh, yeah, was it what what model was it? Oh, yeah, those models are a little bit flaky. We, we've, we're not that way anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you're just like, bullshit, bullshit. You're going to pull something and screw these don't, people over. Can't trust the synthetic. Yes, you cannot trust the synthetic. And... It was just a great opening because now right away you're just like, oh, man, what role is Bishop going to play as this movie moves forward? Yeah, it really sets it up because you just don't you just don't know. You just don't know if he's going to be a hero or he's going to do something that jeopardizes this mission or jeopardizes Ripley. So, um, yeah, I love the introduction of of Bishop and became such a Lance Henriksen fan after that. No doubt about it. It's a fantastic scene. And it's another moment where you see Ripley do her thing and the gravity of the situation to her, because I'm going to digress here again, but the the whole storytelling, the mastery of the storytelling, because we have an intro, we're introducing all of the colonial Marines in the scene. They've come out of hypersleep. We're kind of getting to see them one by one, little snippets of each one. And we understand that Vasquez, she's a hard ass, right? What is she doing right off the bat? Oh, yeah. She's working out right away. She's doing pull-ups. Yep. She's joined by Drake. Drake does some pull-ups with her. They do a little fancy handshake. Oh, okay. They're buds. Mm -hmm. Great. Boom. Just like that. We understand those characters. Then they're a little suspect of Sigourney Weaver. You know, what's up with Snow White over there? You know, who's the new new girl, right? Mm -hmm. And then we get right off the bat Hudson, of course, Bill Paxton, who's kind of mouthing off as soon as he gets out of hypersleep and he's talking to the commander, uh, Apone, yeah. you know, say, uh, talking some shit. And we're like, oh, okay, he's the wise cracking comic relief. Boom. We know that character, right? And this happens a very short span of time. Good. We're establishing character. They get into the setting of the cafeteria. They're sitting down. Now we're talking about Bill scene where we are introduced to Bishop Immediately, something's different. He's very deft with the knife. He does the fancy flip, like you said. And then when he does the knife trick, he goes super speed. And you're like, in the film magic, the film effect is pretty cool. Pretty hold- yes. It holds up pretty good. Mm-hmm. You're like, how did he go that fast? That's weird. But he did it. And you see, in there's a very, I caught it this time, where they start joking around the table, right? And you'd mention, oh, we're going to go down there and cure some of these colonial uh, girls of their virginity, you know, some sexist comment. And Ripley looks up kind of overhearing the joking and she's dead serious. She's like, this isn't good. This is not a good start. They are not 
they don't they don't know they do, they are not taking this seriously at all and this is going to be a fucking problem they don't know but the fact that she's so serious throughout again leads to the the gravity of it and we have hicks also here whom we haven't talked about who's the wonderful michael bean You've got Michael Bean as Hicks, you got Bill Paxton as Hudson, and now you have Lance Henriksen as Bishop, the synthetic android. All three actors, very familiar with James Cameron, all three having been in The Terminator. Yes. Which was just a few years before, in 1984. So they joined Cameron on this film as well. And they're all in this scene together. Uh, pretty cool stuff. And couldn't agree with you more. Lance Henriksen, I became a fan of his immediately uh, because of this film. And to be able to do just a last note on to credit to Lance Henriksen to take on this role too. You can read a little bit about it in the research. Again, we're going to re- reference the first film and I recommend everyone go back to watch the original alien directed by Ridley Scott, 1979. It's a beautiful, horrific, crazy sci-fi movie. And the original synthetic Android in that film is played by Ian Holm, who's brilliant. And he yes. plays Ash is the name of the synthetic Android. And he goes a little nutty and uh, has an ulterior motive and he has a healthy respect for the alien. Let's just put it that way. And he goes after Ripley. He goes after Sigourney Weaver and tries to murder her by rolling up a magazine and shoving it down her throat. It's like it's a brutal scene. And that's why you understand why Ripley is a little averse to androids. So the, the fact that Ian Holm plays that role so well though as this crazy synthetic in alien and then lance henriksen has to be synthetic 2.0 in aliens and he pulls it off that is one thing this franchise has gotten right they've always cast the synthetics i have that later on in my questions yeah for you yeah all right so what's your uh next favorite scene so i'm going right to the med lab i'm going to the med lab and this is where we have newt has been introduced. Newt is the one surviving colonist. How old is she, Bill, in this? She's a uh, third grade. Yeah, yeah. So she's probably second or third grade. Okay. Says one thing. So she's eight or nine. That's, it is second grade. That's right. Second grade. Okay, um, so she's eight. So Newt is the only surviving colonist, this young girl, and they've taken her in. They've, they've found her. And at this point in the story, they're basically have been marooned on this planet. They got to fend for themselves. The, the surviving Marines plus Ripley, plus this little girl whom Ripley has now kind of taken under her wing and, and taken upon herself to protect her. And at this point, uh, she's puts Newt into the med in this med lab onto into uh, tucks her into bed. Great moment. Actually, when they talk about monsters this always had an effect. I mean, I always remember that conversation where as oh, yeah. little, she says as a little kid, you know, they tell us stories about monsters and we think they're not real, but they are, aren't they? And Ripley says basically, yeah, the monsters are real. And it's just, it's great. Mm-hmm. And you see the connection between them. They have great chemistry and that works very well. So uh, moments later, Ripley's trying to get some shut eye too. So uh, R- uh, Newt has uh climbed underneath underneath the bed and Ripley is underneath the bed with her. They had both fallen asleep uh, to get a little bit. None of nobody slept at this point. So they're sleeping a bit. And then then Ripley awakens with a start and she looks around and realizes 
something's wrong because there's something has been broken open on the floor. And this means one thing, because we also know at this point in the story that there were two face huggers that had been recovered. Again, this is part of the, we haven't covered this yet in our podcast. And if you don't know what face huggers are, there's these uh, parasites that attach to your face and they impregnate you with an alien, a baby alien that bursts out of your chest. It's really pleasant. And these face huggers happen to look like giant fucking spiders with long tails that whip around and they have like a big egg sac that they carry around. It's basically the single most disgusting thing you could imagine, in my opinion. And these face huggers can fly across the room and they attach themselves to your face and put their thing down your throat and impregnate you with an alien baby. So those are face huggers. And they're in this med lab, they've had two of them that have been kept alive. And at this point, basically Sigourney Weaver, Ripley, and Newt wake up to find that they have been locked inside the med lab with these two face huggers running around free. And Ripley does not have her M41A pulse rifle. She is unarmed and they have to fend for themselves. And it is scary as fuck, man. You see these face huggers running around. One in particular, you'd think there's only one at first. You forget that there were two that were still alive. And the problem is, this has all been orchestrated by Burke, who ends up being villain in the story. And he's trying to basically set up Ripley to get impregnated by one of these aliens so he can get this alien back through customs, basically back to the planet so they can weaponize it, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. We'll probably get into that. Regardless, this is a very horrific sequence where both Ripley and Newt have to protect themselves from these two facehuggers crawling around the room, trying to latch onto their faces. It's horrific. And finally, because Burke has shut off the security cameras and whatnot, uh, Ripley figures out she'll just set off the fire alarm, which she does. Now we've got sprinklers. It's just, it's scary. You got water going all over the place. These things are crawling around. And then you get Hicks coming in, which is awesome at the I love that part when oh, Hicks yeah. get, comes down with his pulse rifle and just shoots the glass. Yeah. And then he just like without hesitation just, just dives through. through. And then both Hicks and Hudson corner these face huggers and they're uh blasting them. Well, Hudson basically blasts one of them, and they have to shoot him like a million times. These things won't fucking die. And then Hicks manages to get one of the face huggers off of Ripley because the almost got her. It's choking her to death with its tail wrapped around her neck and they get it off her, throw it off to the side and Vasquez then actually shoots it. Anyway, it's a really intense sequence. So that's, that was my next. Yeah. That was on my list too, as, as next scene. And my knees are like in my chest and my hands are wrapped around. Cause I'm just like, Oh my God, what the hell's going to happen? Yeah. Because the thing that you learn from the first movie and they kind of mentioned it in the second one too, is like once that thing latches on your face, there ain't no getting it off. There's no getting it off um, because they have acid for blood too. So in order to take it off, you would have to kill the host. Right. So you got to get to it before it gets on your face or your toast. Yeah, that's it. And what is even amazing too, because they have almost like, almost like snow crab legs too. They kind of oh, toast. Sk- yeah, yeah. skitter around on. And just watching this time, I was like, how the hell did they do that? Because you can't do stop motion. And right. it's like, is that like a remote? I don't know. That, that was amazing how they get those things to run around. And yeah, that's definitely goes into the scary, tense scene. And first, 
you know, Ripley opens her eyes and you, she sees that the container of the face hugger is knocked over. Right. So, you know, right away, like, oh, shit, someone let one loose in the room. But you don't know who it is at first. Right. And then because they're in the science lab, they're basically in that self-contained room. So if something goes wrong, nothing would get out of the room and they're locked in there. And when she's waving at the camera to get someone's attention and then they show the shot of the remaining Marines. Right. Uh, talking. To, and then you just see Burke look to see her waving and just slowly turn that camera off. Oh, just like, yeah. Brutal. Oh, you fucking dick. Yep. You son of a bitch. Um, because at that point you don't really know. That's the you don't, but they had set it up a little bit in a scene right. previous where you understand he has an ulterior motive himself. He right. wants to get these creatures back to the company. Right. But because you, they could make billions of dollars. Yeah. Biotech weaponry. Right. But yeah, you don't know what extent he would do to do. How far this. will he go? Yeah. How right. far? Yeah, exactly. How far he will go. It's a good call, Bill, because that is a great and a very important moment when you see Burke turn off the video camera on his end. Mm-hmm. He knows that she's in distress, but he wants her to be. So he was the one that set her up. Yeah, it's a very tense scene. And yeah, I, I, I remember just being like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's what I was worried about. I thought Newt was going to get it at that point, but that would have been crazy but yeah it's a, it's a well, great scene the fact it just creeps me out because it's like if i were trapped in a room with two giant spiders running around and i had no way to defend myself mm-hmm. like you just kind of run into a corner and hope it and these things basically can jump and fly around too it's like it's the creepiest thing these yeah. things look like they put together they're like okay let's think of three or four different really scary creatures and just put them all into one yes because it's got crab legs but it kind of runs like a spider and it has that long tail the long tail that whips around and then choke you can choke you with it so it looks part reptile part snow crab part uh, it's fucking freaky they would not be selling what at the pet shop i'll tell you that much it's just really it's well edited it's well timed it's well as, as far as like horror scenes go this that's another one by the book like it's just very smartly done mm-hmm Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to my next favorite scene is uh, Hudson's death scene. Oh, yeah. Love that. So yeah, I put that in as part of that. That whole scene is one of my favorite scenes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So at this point in the movie, we find out because of the Marines going down to try to rescue the colonists, the atmospheric generator, they damaged it trying to do this rescue. So now 
there's a ticking clock on this thing's going to basically blow up the whole base. So right. they have to get off at some point. And now they're figuring out how they're going to do this. So they have a plan where there's another drop ship up in orbit and Bishop's going to go out, bring it down. And right. uh, hopefully they're going to get out in time. But in the meantime, they're, they basically locked themselves in this one section of the compound, hoping to keep the aliens out. Right. And they thought they've stealed every way for them to get in, but they find a way. Oh, yeah. That's why I put, oh, yeah, it's awesome. So fucking awesome. So now it's the final assault of the aliens. And up to this whole point, Hudson's just been a total bitch about it. He's just right. whining and complaining the whole time. You're just like, Jesus Christ, how are you a Marine? You're just a whiny. Yeah. Just whine, complain, everything. But once those aliens get in and the shit goes down, damn, Hudson does a 180. Yeah. He's just badass. Just, you want some too? You want some too? And he just start, starts taking them all out. Yeah, it's like he's just, it goes up roid rage all of a sudden. Right? Exactly. Just, like, it's great. Yeah, because all of a sudden you start cheering from. We're like, yes, this is oh, yeah, this is why he's part of this crew. And of course, they just get overwhelmed because there's just so many aliens. And one of them literally comes through the floor and grabs right. him. And even while it's pulling him down, he's still like, you know, I'll get you. And you're like, oh, you got to save him. You got to save him. And it's just that great shot where the hand comes up and just grabs him in the face and just pulls him down. That claw. Like hand that grabs him by his face and just pull. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, you nailed it. Throughout this whole movie, you're just like, oh my God, stop your goddamn complaining. Right. And then in a minute, you're cheering for him and you're almost like, oh crap, they got Hudson. You feel so bad. You're like, damn it. I can't remember a movie where you turn for a character that fast. Where it's not like he's the bad guy, and all of a sudden you find out, oh, he's been the good, good guy the whole time. No, he's technically the good guy, but he's the good guy you don't like, and now you right. love him. And it just enhances everything he's done up to that point. Right. It makes the character so much better, and like on rewatches, you just love him, because you know when the chips are down, yes, I actually, this is the guy I actually do want in the foxhole with me, because I know he's going to have my back. Great point, Bill. It's a credit to Bill Paxson. R.I.P., man. Miss that yes. guy. He he left us way too soon. Mm -hmm. Bill Paxton, what a lovable actor. He's a a charming dude. You know, he can play the everyman. But this, I mean, this movie really solidified him as that guy, you know, that you just, you always root for him whenever you saw him on screen after. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's put every movie after. You're like, oh, yeah. You're like, oh, love this guy. That's fucking Hudson, man. Right. Yeah. And you're absolutely, and that's the, Again, credit to him because he is a whiny little bitch the entire movie, but he's funny though. He's still the comic relief. There's something oh, yeah. dear. There's in, something endearing about him, and at the same time, he's an avatar for the audience too. Where it's like, well, yeah, there's part of me that would probably be a whiny little bitch too if I were in that you know scenario. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like this, Bill, where it's kind of when you have people put into extraordinary circumstances and different people will react different ways under those extraordinary circumstances. So you get every side of it. You have Sigourney Weaver, who's a natural born leader. She just takes over. Then you have Gorman, who's a coward and uh, Hudson, who is just scared. He's just really scared. And he's just funny. And just his, a lot, some of it was improv. Some of it wasn't, but just his always, he's always talking, say, we're, we're going to die. This is just great, man. That's just great. We're never going to make it through this kind of thing. And 
basically Sigourney Weaver at one point has says, you need to snap out of it, snap out of it, relax. You're a soldier. We've got a job to do. There's only one way we're going to survive this. And we need you. We need you. And he kind of comes around a little bit, but he's still freaking out. He's still freaking out. He's just nervous and anxious the whole time. But they have sealed off all the entrances and vents. They've welded it. That's another cool device that they have. Oh, yeah, a little piece of tech are those little welding torches. Yes, those are awesome. And so they've welded the door shut and they've kind of secluded and isolated themselves in this one area so that the aliens can't get to them. That was the whole point. And they're going to wait it out until Bishop, who they sent all the way on the outside, to go to the terminal link and remote operate the drop ship to come down and pick them up. But in the meantime, they're just going to sit tight in this little area that they've <laughs> welded shut. And yet Hudson's looking down at his damn motion tracker and the aliens are coming and they're getting closer. And it's just one of my favorite scenes because... Also, previous to this, they've shut off the power, which is another great line that he said, how can, yeah. they, turn, how can they shut off the power? They're animals. Mm-hmm. The motion tracker, what a brilliant device. And they keep coming. You see the cluster coming in. It's like 10, 20 meters. They're coming. They're coming. Coming. Get away from the door. They're close. 10 meters, five meters. They can't be. That's inside the room. Yeah. You're not reading it. He's like, well, I'm reading it right. No, well, you're not reading it right. And then Sigourney Weaver looks up and realizes they're in the ceiling. Yes. They're above us, which is just, ah, it gives me chills every time. That's the moment. That's one of those moments. Oh yeah. And then when Hicks goes up there and just the reveal, that shot's amazing. Cause Hicks goes up, like you said, he looks in the ceiling, you see a hundred of them like crawling towards them. And actually, it's probably only like four or five, but that's your imagination just goes with it. You know, there's a ton of them because on a motion tracker, there's like a thousand. Yeah, I, I believe it's six because I think they only had six costumes. Oh, there you they go. Used all six for that shot. Ah, great. It works. It's effective. Mm-hmm. Hicks freaks out, falls backward, shooting the ceiling. And now you've got fucking aliens dropping from the ceiling. And immediately they're like hopping around. Yes. And it's like, I'm going, how do they do this? First of all, and I'm freaking out. I'm like, yeah, holy shit balls. We've got aliens running around like crazy. Now we already know they're limited on ammo and they start shooting and they're all badasses. but you're right, man. This is where Hudson really steps up and he's like, come on, come fuck you. You want some? Come on, get yep. some, get some, fuck you. And he just lets them have it. And then, unfortunately, he goes down. And here's my thing. I'm going to jump way ahead here, Bill, because they go, you know, Hudson goes down and we don't really see him die. And we know what the aliens do with people. They put them in cocoons and they live for a while. And this whole movie, they're going after Newt. And I'm like, what about about Hudson? Go back. What happened to leave no man behind? Go back for Hudson. Jason, I can't believe I, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie. I never thought of that. Yeah. We don't see him die. We see he's screaming as the alien yanks him down. Right. I'm like, come on, man. I just want to start a whole movement, you know, hashtag save Hudson. Damn. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, this, so this little Hudson alien running around on uh, right. <laughs> LV426. That's right. That's part of the whole. Yeah. Damn. We have to get into that. But yeah, that pissed me off this time around. I'm like, 
man, they're all, she's all like, we got to go back for Newt, go back for Newt. I'm like, what the fuck? What about Hudson, man? Fantastic scene, which leads right into the vent chase. So it's all kind of one giant action sequence. Oh, yeah. And also, this was when uh, Burke gets it, right? Yes. That's his great death scene. Yeah, because right before they attack, they're deciding what they're going to do with Burke. And oh, right. They're thinking of killing him. All right, we waste him. No offense. Yep. And then the lights go out. Yeah. And then, yeah. They cut the power. How do they cut the power? They're animals. And who's the first one to run away? Burke. Yep. Carter J. Yep. And locks him in that room. Son of a bitch. And once again, you're like, oh, you mother. You love to hate him. Yes. He's so good in this, man. Paul Reiser. I know. Mad about you, Paul Reiser. That's the Paul Reiser we're talking about, people. I know. He's a dick in this movie. Yes. Like, you love to hate him. I don't think he's ever done another role like this. I can't. Not that I know. Been, I yeah. know. But this entire sequence we're talking about, you know, Bill and I are talking about our favorite. It's one of our favorite scenes here. So it's a combination of just great, intense storytelling with the aliens coming through into the breaking through into the room by entering through the ceiling and then an intense, intense action sequence, which leads to just a great moment because finally Burke gets his comeuppance when he's trying to seal them in there and he's closing doors behind them and he's because he knows he's in big trouble. And so he keeps running. And then one of the doors opens behind him and he turns around and there is one of the alien warriors facing him down. And we get to see that's the classic all time enduring image of the aliens lips unfurling and the teeth brandishing and the mouth opening. And you see the inner jaw, the inner mouth extending outward because that's what an alien does. It has a, a second mouth that shoots out and basically will go right through your skull. Yeah. Burke, and Burke wasn't going back to Cancun. That's for sure. Yeah. Burke didn't make it that far. Yeah. And it's a great death. Mm-hmm. Deserved it. That bastard. But yeah, that, the whole thing then does leave into the vent chase, which we can separate that. I don't know if you have that as a scene unto itself, but no, I uh, the vent chase is pretty cool because now you got aliens chasing them through this duct, this vent duct and, Vasquez and Gorman have to commit suicide by grenade, and it's pretty awesome. Yeah, so what happens is, because the aliens basically have them cornered on this last attack, and because Newt has been, we don't really know how long she's been on her own, she's basically just been getting through the complex through the vent system. So she shows our remaining survivors how to get to the dropship by going through the vents. And um, so that's where they're running around right now in order to, to get free. And it's great because she just knows this way, go left. It's like, wow, you've been here for a while that you know where you need to go. But of course, there's just so many of these aliens. Gorman and Vasquez do get cornered. Right. Thanks for clarifying that because I wanted to clarify that the fact that they commit suicide is clearly not awesome. It's the fact that they have no other choice because they know if they're captured by the aliens, what would happen to them. But by committing suicide by grenade, they will actually take out at least a handful of the aliens. Right. And give the rest of the crew. So they're sacrificing themselves. Yes. And it was great. Cause even Vasquez's last line, you always were an asshole Gorman. That's yeah. just, this is a great line. Like even in death, I still freaking hate you, but right. we, we got to do what we got to do. And that's kind of his, also his little moment of redemption as well. Oh yeah. Cause we, we kind of hate Gorman a little bit too, throughout this movie. 
Yes. And he finally gets, has, you know, he grows some balls at the end. Yes. There is. Yeah. There is a lot of redemption in this. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Um, so it takes me to my next favorite scene. Uh, All right. Which I call Ripley to the rescue. <laughs> yes. Hell yeah. So as we just mentioned, um, they're trying to escape through the vents to get to the drop ship. But because of the explosion, Ripley and Hicks get separated from Newt. And Newt gets dropped down this shaft into another section of the compound. And because of her size, it's not a way that Ripley and Hicks can get to. So they got to do the runaround to go find her. Mm-hmm. And once they do, she's under the grate. And Hicks is supposed to cut it open so they can just pull her out and take her to the ship. Well, unfortunately, there's an alien down there with Newt and grabs her. And we're like, oh, shit, what's going to happen to Newt? But, of course, they're probably taking her to get cocooned. Right. So Sigourney Weir decides she's going to go back and get her. And luckily, Hicks had given Ripley a tracker. So if they got separated, he would know where she was at all time. But Ripley had given that tracker to Newt. So now they know exactly where she is in the alien layer so Ripley can go down and get her. Right. So Ripley just goes all badass because now that they have the drop ship, they have all the weapons that are in the drop ships that now they're they get to reload. Exactly. So, you know, she's just like taping everything together, just grabbing every little piece of armament they have. Oh, it's awesome. Yes. Don't you love those sequences in any movie? I'm always a fan of when the hero or heroine gets to load up. We're getting suited up. Oh yeah. To kick ass. Mm-hmm. And it's either like a little like a brief intercut montage of some sort of it's this suit up montage, right? They're putting on a bulletproof vest or they're gathering all the ammo. In this particular instance, she's literally taping together a fucking flamethrower, an M41A pulse rifle with a grenade launcher on it. And she's, you know, stocking up on fucking flares and bandolier of grenades. And yes. you know, keep going, man. It's good shit, man. I yeah. love that shit. Oh, and I love about the pulse rifle because we haven't mentioned this. It's, there's a counter on that pulse yes. rifle. So you Another know how many, yeah. yeah. Just a, just a smart little detail that they put into the film. So, of course, Ripley's got to go back to where this all started, where they first found these aliens into the lair. And she's try, trying to track Newt. And, of course, unfortunately, she finds the tracker on the ground. It fell, it fell off her wrist. Right. Oh, shit. What the hell is she going to do? And at this point, they only have minutes before this planet's going to detonate. 19 minutes from the time they were dropped off. I, mm-hmm. I watched this time. Oh, yeah. Happened, real time. This section, this portion of the movie happens in real time. Yes. And I love that, that it actually was awesome. very, very close. Yeah, very. And then you see Newt and she's cocooned. And of course, one of those freaking eggs is <sighs> right there. And that's in this one's particularly disgusting. Oh, yeah. And then it just slowly unfurls and you're like, oh, crap. How the hell is she going to get out of this one? And Newt just does her signature screaming. Mm-hmm. And we slowly see the legs starting to come out of the egg. And luckily, I mean, Ripley is maybe right around the corner and comes around and just shoots the crap out of that yeah. egg and pulls Newt out of that cocoon. I got to I got to find out what that, that stuff is, because I was like, that must, must not have been a fun day on set to get wrapped in whatever that crap was to be cocooned in, because that did not look fun. Even just trying to pull it apart. It was just well, like, oh, that's right. gross. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah, I would have loved to know. Yeah, the, whatever the concoction was, what kind of batch of shit they had to mix up 
in order to get the right texture and you know for that material whatever they use for the cocoon because it's not like a it you know it loses itself to a spider web in a way yeah but but it's thick. right it's almost like someone drops black elmer glue all over you and you just stick and then i was like that must have been fun cleaning that crap off too yeah so then because one of the smart things i thought too that ripley does with the flare so she flared herself a pass so she knew how to get back to the elevator Right. But because she blew up the egg, she gave herself away. And now the aliens have cornered her and she backs. She has to go another way. She has to find another way around. And that's when we have the biggest reveal of the film. The alien queen. Hell yeah. Oh, man. It's hard to top that moment. This is yes. this is like ultimate sequel moment. Yes. Like this is what this is how you one up the original. This is how you do it. Yeah. And the queens in her little layer or hive or whatever you want to call it, dropping all these eggs kind of thing. You literally see her laying an egg. Oh yeah. It's It's totally gross and amazing. Almost, almost like her, almost like a, it's almost like a giant clear larvae kind of thing. You just see all these eggs in that and like, holy crap, there's gotta be at least a hundred in there. And almost even the aliens reactions, like, uh, what are, you, what are you doing in here? Kind of, it was because really like, what, what the hell are you doing in here? Um, this is my my private area. Yeah, exactly. Um, can you see I'm, I'm trying to make babies? <laughs> and Ripley's just like, oh shit, because I mean, it's kind of mentioned like, you know, where are these eggs coming from? But it's it's almost like a throwaway. They don't, you know, they don't really expound on it. It's just kind of a, a line that they just throw out there for the audience, like. Hopefully you remember because this is going to come up later in the film. And sure enough, it does. Right. And this is the image that you see on the VHS box. Like this would be what you'd see if you went to Blockbuster. It's on the box is that picture of Ripley holding Newt in her arms. Looking yeah, with up the guns. With yep. the gun. And that's that moment when she sees the queen. And then it's just great because they almost do like this initial truce. The alien's like, okay. I want to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I oh yeah, that. no, no, go ahead. Yeah. Just... Oh no, I'm just like I'm just the aliens. Like, okay, you're, you're in here with my baby eggs. I don't want you to touch them. Just you can go. It's an awesome moment. Yeah, because it, it really for the first time shows that there's an intelligence. Thank you. I wrote yeah, yeah among the aliens because at first they want to attack and Ripley's like, no, I got guns. I could take all the babies out. And the queen's like, no, 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 we're not taking my babies out. So just back off. And then Ripley just starts backing off, thinking, okay, everything's set. And then one of the eggs just opens, and Ripley's having none of this. She does the head tilt. Yep. And just opens up everything she has left on these eggs. <laughs> fucking great. Flame so thrower, fucking great. The pulse yeah. rifle, and you just see it winding down. The grenades into the aliens, the queen alien. And as an action fan, you couldn't dream for a better scenario. Oh, yeah. This is what you want to see. You want to see her use everything in her arsenal. Oh, yeah. Everything. I mean, she literally has nothing left when she's finished and then runs off to try to meet with the, the ship. This is so cool. I just love the scene where you literally see the aliens thinking they could sneak up on her. And Ripley just shows the gun and the queen just gives that just gives a look and nod like, uh, no, back off. Back mm-hmm. off. We're not touching my babies. We're not touching my babies. But yeah, that is, uh, that's just a cool scene. It's from 
top to bottom, T to B, just a loaded fucking scene. There are so many layers and it is juicy, Bill, literally and figuratively. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I couldn't agree with you more. It's probably, I mean, I'll just come out right now and say it's my favorite scene of the entire film. It's got to be the best scene for me personally, because she's now on a rescue mission. That is Ripley going after Newt. So she's using that locator wristwatch to track her down. And I'm not just going to go through, like you, you, you laid it out wonderfully, but some of the favorite, like my favorite moments throughout is that this whole atmospheric or atmosphere processor is about to blow. And you mentioned that. So you have that tension already. Now you have like electrical sparks and arcs flying back and forth. There's pipes that are overheating. There's things exploding. She's putting down flares and she's trying to find Newt. So we're, we're desperate and we're on a time constraint. So you have multiple layers of tension. So that's smart. But when she gets to the actual layer, I just think that's so important that you'd mentioned the signs of intelligence now, because from to this point, we think that these aliens are just these murderous creatures that kind of are, have a singular motivation, right? Yeah. Or in my opinion, a dual motive, their only purpose, it's conquer and procreate. That's all they do. And, but at this moment, and there we have the, th- the theme of the, the motherly theme, right? Because we have this relationship between both uh, Ripley and Newt, and then she comes upon the queen. And I just want to touch also upon the sound design in this entire scene. Oh, it yes. is fucking impeccable. It is brilliant. It is, like I said, the scene is loaded because there's a lot of use of moments of silence, but especially when she gets to the queen, it gets quiet. Oh, yeah. There's so much noise up to that point. And you have moments of music cues, et cetera. But when it gets to that point, what do you hear? Just the, do you hear the queen and the hiss? Mm-hmm. And then what do you hear? It's like the, you know, the flamethrower, the hiss from the, yeah. uh, like the pilot light, basically for the, <laughs> the mm-hmm. flamethrower that, and that's all you hear, but otherwise it's silence or maybe a subtle wind kind of coming through and it just gets so quiet and she sees the queen and in all her glory and getting back to signs of life of intelligence in these creatures. I wrote down, we understand that they're sentient beings. And then I had to look up the definition of what sentient means Mm -hmm. because I thought it meant one thing. And then it turns out because it means basically the ability, you know, the uh, expressing feeling being that can either feel emotion or, and, or consciousness. And I always thought sentient meant like being of intelligence, someone that has the power to of reason, right or wrong, the power of deduction, you know, to be able to make choices. It seems to be, if you look at the definition of a sentient being, it's a little bit more simple. And now the definition is being become quite broad as to what is a sentient being, what is not human beings, animals, vertebrates versus invertebrates, et cetera. It's an, you can go down that rabbit hole. You understand now that they're, like you said, intelligent beings, they do have feeling and that they are very protective of their own. And that's just such a cool moment when she swings the flamethrower around as if she's going to set it off. Mm -hmm. The other warrior aliens start backing off as if, and you see, 
you see the queen communicating with her underlings through just a head nod or whatever. And it's understood. And you see like, oh, these things can think and or feel, and they are cognizant of their surroundings somehow. And it's, uh, it's fucking intense. But yeah, that moment when she just, unla- you know, she's unloading the grenade launcher into the queen's sack that's giving you know birth to these eggs and just it's um it's awesome but i just wanted to give a shout out to the sound design because between and by, by the way just the, between the flamethrower this the sounds that the alien makes the queen the oh, hissing yeah. there's so much hissing and the drooling and it's just and then the m41a pulse rifle it sounds like a machine gun but it has a weird echo effect makes it even sound cooler and then you've got all the explosions but again, but the use of silence in this movie, I, I found a lot more powerful upon this uh, re-vo- uh, rewatch. So. Yeah, and what even makes that scene way more powerful is Sigourney Weaver knows that whole place is going to go nuclear in a handful right. of minutes. So this is just pure rage and anger that she's just taken out because she doesn't need to. She just shoot the egg and just move on because... Good point. Everything's going to blow up soon anyway, but that's just a, you know, F you to what you did to Mike Pru and Nostromo. Oh, yeah. To these Marines. And just, she's like, I, I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to take you out. And then this is all going to go up in pieces. So I think that what I love about that too, she just, the, the anger comes out. You you took my, my surrogate child away from me that right. I vowed to protect and you're going to pay for this. Oh, yeah. This is payback. Payback mm-hmm. is a bitch. It's a powerful scene. I don't want to forget because we're talking about the reveal that these creatures are are sentient, intelligent creatures. Now, this moment when the fucking queen detaches from her sack and chases Ripley back through these tunnels Mm -hmm. and Ripley gets back to the main freight elevator. Awesome tension sequence here. Yes. Creating tensions. The elevator won't come down. The elevator then all of a sudden and she's carrying Newt this whole time. Right. By the way, Ripley's in great shape. Yes. Ripley's in great shape. Great stamina. And she has no weapons because she just used them all. And the elevator has finally come down. She turns around. There's the queen comes around the corner. The queen attacks, but it's too late. The door is already closing. And Sigourney and Newt are going up the elevator here. But there's the great moment, too, where you realize, oh, this queen ain't no dummy because the other elevator comes down and opens up and you right. see the queen Unfortunately, you, go ahead. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, Sigourney Weaver did the Alan Bauer and splash and hit both buttons. Right. To see which <laughs> elevator would come down first. So, a call she back stood, in, be, she yep. stood in between. It was like, yep, I'm, I'm ready to see which one is whatever one comes first. But yeah, unfortunately, yeah. So the second elevator comes down and it's understood that the queen is going to use that elevator. And you're like, oh, this queen, they're smart. They're smart creatures. They know what they're doing. Yeah. She's uh, she's fucking pissed now. So I would love to have seen a shot of the queen hitting the, the top floor button, though. That would have been cool. <laughs> like she wouldn't know. Just like the one the finger claw, yep. like yep. pressing the button. <laughs> like with a really extra long fingernail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just an incredible sequence, which is capped off with them getting to the top and Bishop's not there. Yes. He took off with the freaking dropship. And you think that Ripley and Newt are screwed because here comes the queen in the other elevator. And they're on this platform with no ship 
And that's the great line too, where she just says to Newt, close your eyes, baby. Yes. And I'd love the sound of that of the metal. You just keep hearing the metal creaking and stuff. Uh, that yeah. gets, I love that every time. I love listening to that. Just that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that sound. I love that sound. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's great, man. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, you think that thing is going to collapse at any at any moment. Yes, but Bishop does show up in time, and they do escape. And I'm sure this goes to your last favorite scene, Jason. No doubt about it. It's the face-off. It's the queen battle. So they get back. They think safely. Oh, here's the great music cue, too, kicks in. The, the This should be oh, yeah. used in every building tension sequence in every movie, always. Just use this music cue. It's James Horner's you know, score. And it's that march that built and then music builds and builds when Ripley and Newt get onto the drop ship with Bishop and Hicks and they take off and they get to a safe distance and the entire terraforming complex blows up. It's a nuclear fusion blast. And they think, you know, the queen and all the aliens are now vanquished in the blast and the drop ship returns to the Sulaco in orbit and they get off and it's like, oh, we made it. Bishop's like, yeah, sorry, I wasn't on the platform. It wasn't stable. And so I came, but I came back. She's like, Bishop, you did good. Yep. You did good, buddy. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> a giant tail impales Bishop from behind. The queen decided to be a stowaway, just a yep. little stowaway on the drop ship. And uh, so she returns with the dropship onto the Sulaco and has now impaled Bishop upon her tail. And this is the great moment where she grabs Bishop by both hands and just twists his body and tears him in half and just throws him, throws him like a fucking rag doll. And it's awful. And you get the white synthetic Android blood everywhere. Yes. Ugh. And Bishop is just gurgling. Oh, my God. He's in shock. And so this is the beginning of this whole uh, final favorite scene is now it's going to be, I'd say mano y mano, but it's it's bitch against bitch, man. (laughs) And Ripley says to Newt, get away, get away, run away, run, run, run. And she gets the queen alien's attention. And and, uh, so it's Ripley versus the queen. And Ripley runs off into another area of the cargo bay. And the cargo bay door closes. The queen alien doesn't get there in time. The door then opens and you get one of the most iconic shots of all time. A backlit Ripley standing inside the power loader. Yes. And it's, which is a huge device, which was smartly introduced early in the film. Yep. Knowing that this would come back into play later. And here it is. She gets to suit up in what's a power loader. It's basically a load lifter that they use on the docks to load, you know, lift heavy objects is this big mechanical suit that she's, you know, basically standing in and uh, it's great. And so she gets to use this big mechanical suit to battle the queen one-on-one and the battle ensues and she gets the upper hand and she's pissed and the queen is pissed. There's a lot of hissing and there's a lot of a jaw snapping and tail whipping and screaming by Ripley and she gets rip. Uh, she gets the queen by the throat a couple times with the, the mechanical arm. 
squeezing her by the throat. And it's just like, oh man, you just want her to squeeze, squeeze her like to death. Yeah, yeah. You, want, you want them to get, you want Ripley to get this queen in the claws and then like crush her head, but you can't it, anyway. It's fucking intense. It's a great battle scene. The effects are cool. It works. A lot of it had to have been practical effects. And um, I would be remiss to just take us take back in the scene because when the cargo bay door opens to reveal that Ripley has gotten into the power loader, this is the this is the line. Oh yeah. This is the line. And she looks right at the queen, and the queen is like <laughs> hissing at her. And Ripley says, Get away from her, you bitch. Yep. Doesn't get doesn't iconic get much better. Iconic. One take. Oh, really? She got one take with that, and she didn't think she did it very well. Nice. Sounded pretty damn good to me. Yep. Yeah, I loved it too because like watching the fight was like almost watching like two heavyweights, and you had Ripley, who was kind of like the big and bulky, where the alien was more of the quicker, spelt kind of thing. So it was, it was like a clash of styles watching this. It's like, okay. Because, you know, if Ripley swings and misses, then she, she totally puts her off balance. It's like, oh, my God, you got to, you know, you got to be smart on how you're going to handle this. So, yeah, it was, it was always watching a heavyweight fight in a way. That's what I loved. Is this like Ali Frazier? Was it Ali Foreman? Yeah. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, Rip, yeah Ripley would have been a foreman on that one, though. But, yeah, it was it was a nice little battle between the two clashes of styles. Yeah, I don't know if you wanted to take the the rest of that scene because then this is I mean, this is the culmination of the film. This is the, the climax. Yeah, so what happens then is Ripley finally gets a good grip on the queen with power loader and is able to open a bay door and is planning to throw the queen in the bay door, close it, and then open the airlock and bye bye. Alien right. queen. But of course when she goes to throw the alien queen wrap, oh, grabs the power loader and pulls Ripley in with her. So they both fall into, what would you call it? Uh, the airlock. Yeah, I the guess. airlock compartment. Yeah, which is, again, this is very much a callback to the original film, too, because it's yeah, exactly. similar. It's, she's doing the same thing. Yeah. She wants to jettison this alien out into space, into outer space. And it's great. Yeah, when that alien grabs onto the power lifter and drags her down into the airlock too, or pulls her down. They all, they both fall together. It's just a hunk of metal on top of an alien. Yeah. And Sigourney Weaver lets out a great scream yes. too. When she falls, she's just like, ah, yeah. like, Oh my God. Oh, this is not going well. But fortunately for Ripley on the fall, the power loader pins the alien to the, the door. So she's able to crawl out of the power loader, right. work her way up the ladder. And she's just going to open the door there and just, bye-bye alien queen but no (laughs) alien queen is able to grab ripley by the foot ripley now cannot move and now ripley's like i gotta kill this queen and there's a panel right there and she opens the door right there with putting all of them in danger oh yeah was a great scene too because now really reckless yeah so now the doors are starting to open all this air from the ship is getting sucked out yeah ripley's hanging on for her life all of a sudden bishops up there he's sliding across and is able to grab onto a great newt starting to slide uh, bishop, across to get just pulled out bishop half the man he used to be exactly but uh bishop at least is good enough to grab newt yeah and basically save her because yeah that's, that's a heroic good. moment yeah yeah and uh bye-bye alien queen because jettison off into space again and ripley still has to somehow pull herself back up to the you know the cargo bay and close this door and 
Yeah, all the air is being sucked up. Yep, everything's all good. Yeah, you know, and it just made me think about you know uh, Bishop having a couple of heroic moments here at the end, and that also confirms to you know uh, to Ripley that he's one of the good ones, one of the good synthetics. Yes, like, exactly. he's not. He never broke bad in this movie. Yes, Bishop is okay in our book. Yeah, so when it's all said and done, um, basically Ripley, half a bishop, New <laughs> and Hicks are the only are the only survivors. Yeah, of this whole thing. So all those colonists, family, the rest of the Marines, all dead. But yeah, still one hell of a film. Yeah, there was quite the body count, but um, our hero does uh, survives, and Newt survives, and Hicks survives. But not for long, if you know what happened. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this movie does spawn. I should, well, the first one is really what spawned this whole franchise, I should say. But because of the, I think that really the success of Aliens, it really confirmed that this was going to be a franchise. Oh, yeah. And how many films do we have now in total? I believe there's... So we have Alien, Aliens, Alien Cubed, or Alien 3. Right. Resurrection. Uh, Alien Resurrection. So that's four. And then, and then we got Prometheus, the prequel, and Alien Covenant. And then the two Alien versus Predators. So that's six, seven, eight. Eight Alien films in total. Yes. Crazy. And still in my book, the first two are the best. Yeah. They got two of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> Not to say we could break down each one, man. There's There's moments in every one of them that I actually enjoy. Oh, now we got we got to keep moving. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, oh no, no, I didn't mean right now. Oh, this I was going to say. Like, <laughs> yeah. So uh, now, now say, we're going to move into Alien episode. Three. Yeah. Let's talk about David Fincher's issues with Alien Three. Yeah. Let's break that down. All right. So uh, we move on to our next segment. Let's do it. All right. So our next segment is Hey, it's that actor. In this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. Hey, it's that actor. Hey, you go first, man. All right. Um, so my, hey, it's that actor is Stuart Milligan. And he appears briefly in the beginning of the film. He is the salvage team leader who finds Ripley's ship floating in space. Wow. And the reason I picked him because I just recently saw him as the president in Wonder Woman 1984. Oh, my God. And yes. I just watched that, too. Are you yeah. kidding me? Yes, he's the president. I just thought it was amazing. Like, I literally saw Wonder Woman 1984 this week. And then three days later, I see him again in. Right. In, in, the, beginning, very, yeah, yeah. in the beginning of Aliens. So um, he also had uh, other roles in such 80s films as Outland. Ragtime and Spies Like Us. So my hey is that actor. Oh wow. Stuart Milligan. That's great. I wow. Okay. Um, so for my hey, it's that actor, I'm going with Mark Ralston. Uh he portrayed Private Drake in this film and very recognizable to me. He's a, a bit of a character actor. This movie. He has a great death, getting the, the you know the acid to the face, and then blowing the you know he's got the flamethrower going uh, going everywhere. Yeah. Uh, he has some great uh, quips earlier in the film, makes his mark, no pun intended, before leaving. 
uh, before expiring in Aliens. Uh, he would go on to be in Lethal Weapon 2, which is one of my favorites. He uh, he loses the Krugerrands in the beginning of that movie. The very opening sequence, he's driving the vehicle with all the Krugerrands oh, when uh, you yeah. got Riggs chasing him. So, which I love that opening sequence in Lethal Weapon 2. And uh, one of the there's kind of a little bit of a running joke in Lethal Weapon 2 because he reports back to the South African diplomat and uh, diplomatic community, and he gets killed. The diplomat's right hand man takes him out, and because he's standing and he's standing on the plastic, if you remember that, oh, yeah, and they okay. wrap him up in the plastic. That's yep. Mark Ralston. Gotcha. And they make a joke later on because the number one guy's something goes wrong, and he has to report back to the diplomat, and he's looking around. The diplomat says, "Why are you looking around?" He's like, "I just wanted to make sure I'm not standing on plastic." Right. So Mark Ralston. As Private Drake, also in Lethal Weapon 2. And then he has a part in Shawshank Redemption that's pretty solid uh, in the prison. And also, oh, yeah, in, uh, right. yeah. And then he's also in The Departed as one in Jack Nicholson's crew. Wow. That's a good yeah. one. Damn. Yeah. Together. Good and call. so, yeah. So, yeah. And I, he's, I think, very memorable in Aliens as Drake. Yeah. Um, so, I here's a real quick one. My backup, in case you had chosen Mark Rosson, was Paul Maxwell, who plays Van Leeuwen, who's the number one like uh, bureaucrat in that conference room scene I was talking about, one of my favorite scenes, uh, when they're interrogating basically, uh, Ripley. Mm-hmm. He's leading the questioning. Paul Maxwell went on later to be featured in the uh, opening of a little film called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He is credited as Panama Hat. Yes. So... <laughs> If recall, the opening of Indiana Jones actually is young Indiana Jones played by River Phoenix, but then it cuts to present day in this in that fiction. And you have Harrison Ford on the Coronado ship uh, fighting the baddie, the main bad guy who is just known as Panama Hat. That's Paul Maxwell. Awesome. Uh, And it's funny for people that listening uh, to this podcast is. Jason and I do not discuss who are, hey, it's that actor. So it is a surprise to both of us. But for me, every time I watch these movies, I always try to predict, based on what I know about Jason, who right. he's going to pick to say is that actor. And that's who I thought you were going to pick. Yeah, yeah. That's who I thought you were going to pick because of the tie to Indiana Jones. But, right, yeah. But I, I got to say, pretty, a bit pretty good about oh, I think who, you, yeah, accurate about who you're going to call yeah. on these. So Your predictions have been pretty spot on. Yeah, so Jason's good enough to at least do a, a backup in case uh, we match because I'm always just like, I'm one and done. Jason at least has two because I'm and always then, yeah. thinking, oh, Jason's going to pick this guy, so I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> uh, that's funny. It's, it's true, though. And I usually like to find someone that has been featured in Miami Vice. Yes. But uh, no such luck no. on this production. Yeah, it's not, a big, it's not really that big of a cast. So I was surprised we even get two people. To play, hey, it's that actor. I was like, man, we got slim pickings on this one, but we pulled it off. So yeah. I'm impressed. Nicely done, Bill Bant. All right. So moving on to box office. Um, Aliens was released on July 18th, 1986, on a budget somewhere between 17 and 19 million dollars. It grossed 85.2 million domestically and 98.1 million internationally for a grand total of 183.3 million worldwide. It was the seventh highest grossing movie in the U.S. in 1986. It debuted at number one and held that position for four weeks until it was knocked out of the number one spot by The Fly. 
but it would stay in the top Ooh. five at the box office during its first 10 weeks of release. So this is a crazy fact about 1986. There was only five movies that year in the U.S. that grossed over $100 million. I thought for sure Aliens had done that. But uh, yeah, there was only five. Jason, do you think you can name any of the five? 1986, grossed $100 Top Gun. There you go. That was number one of the year. Yeah. And the other ones were, uh, number two was Crocodile Dundee. Number three was Platoon. Uh, Number four was The Karate Kid Part 2. And number five was Star Trek for The Voyage Home. Ah. Yes. Wonderful. Yes. (laughs) Um, So saying that slightly tongue-in-cheek. I like that one. That's I did too, man. I've watched it. I've seen it a million times. You got to love Voyage Hope, man. It's all about Save the Whales. Come on. It was actually the second movie I ever saw uh, alone by myself. Star Trek 4. <laughs> okay, so going on to reviews. So growing up in the 80s, we loved catching at the movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert on PBS to hear the reviews and watch clips from that week's upcoming movies. Jason, you're not going to believe this. Their review for Aliens was split. Oh, wow. Split. Really? Yes. Roger gave it a thumbs up, saying it was a well-crafted film. Sigourney Weaver gave a powerful performance, and the special effects were amazing. Gene gave it a thumbs down, thinking it was too much overkill, and that the aliens were just constantly on the attack. Also (laughs) didn't like... He also didn't like that they used those pesky aliens. I know. Always attacking. I, I mean, like, don't they have anything else to do? <laughs> what the fuck? What would what, you think? What do you think they're there for? Sisk? Come on. He also didn't like that they used Newt as the child in peril uh, trope, especially since you know nothing is going to happen to her. It bothered him seeing Newt suffer in the film. Sensitive. Yeah. All right. Hey, he's entitled to his opinion. Yeah, I was totally surprised when I saw that. I thought for sure they were giving it two thumbs up, and then Ebert gave it a big thumbs up, but then also said the movie kind of bothered him afterwards. So he was like, he's like, I don't know if I could recommend it to people, but he thought it was good. So he gave it the thumbs up, and then Gene was like, yeah, I'd be one of those people who'd recommend not to watch it too. So I was totally surprised by that episode. Fascinating. You know, Doing some of my research, it seems to me, and this is kind of my feeling and my recall, is that this film is one of those that definitely grew in popularity years afterward. It was a hit when it was released. However, because of the mythology and lore attached to it, I believe, and no doubt the franchise to follow, it just, its cult following grew exponentially over the years. So I don't know if it had such a strong immediate following, if that makes sense, where there's probably a lot of people that just didn't know if they weren't necessarily like sci-fi fans or whatever that us sci-fi horror thriller action fans knew this was an instant classic, but didn't have an appreciation for all the filmmaking aspects. Like this is movie making at its best in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think people probably had more of an appreciation of that fact in the years to come. If that makes sense. Yeah. I thought people had liked it when it first came out and I thought it was getting good praise. So I think I was very shocked, but then again, I mean, let's be honest. Have you really been that influenced by 
reviews. Like if you want to see a movie, you're going to see a movie no matter what. Of course. Right. Yeah. And like I say in the intro, I always, I always just watch because I want, I just wanted to see clips of the movies and I did like to hear what they had to say. And um, Roger did bring up something interesting that I never even thought about either was that he thought when he was watching that, that new, the whole time was carrying an alien and it would come into play at some point. So I think he said that tension was bothering him too, because he thought at some point there's going to be a reveal that Newt was can. I was like, Oh God, I never thought of that either, but that, I that never thought perfect. of that. And yeah. it totally makes sense being that she was the only survivor. Yeah. That they had found. And yeah, that she would yeah, be carrying, but she's no, carrying. She's, yeah. She's carrying poor little kid. Watch out that one. She's packing. All right. Any Thoughts real quick before we uh, wrap up this episode, because we, we still got another part coming. I know, I know. And we got to save a lot of it for that one. There's some big questions. I'm going to go with some simple ones really here. Uh, here's a question for you. Yes. What do the aliens do with the dead bodies? Meaning the survivors are cocooned. Correct. And I have not done the research on this mythology or the lore aspect, this lore aspect. If they kill someone, what do they do with that body? What happens to those bodies? That's a good question. I have no idea. Because we understand when they arrive at LV-426 to the colony complex compound that everyone's disappeared. Correct. So what happened to the people that were killed? Because they've had to have killed some of them. Correct. Just in the course of... That's a good question. Because I imagine they don't cocoon... Everyone, no matter like if it's a corpse, the baby alien wouldn't be able to grow with inside a dead host. Right. Exactly. Host. Thank you. Yes. Right. And we don't. I was actually thinking about this, too. I'm like, like, what are their eating habits? Right. So that was one of those, again, little things that was kind of nagging at me. Like, Do they use human bodies for different reasons? Maybe they use them for I don't want to go. Like right. totally graphic and gross, but I was going to say, you know, to, cons- you know, construct part of their lair or something like that. That would yeah. be really creepy. Yeah. It's but possible. I mean, or do they ingest the dead bodies somehow? Yeah. Ingest, secrete them. And then that, that's what's, that's what the building materials. That, that, well, I actually thought about, yeah, the, the, yeah, they secrete that resin, like yeah. as if that was part of, because that's never really explained because they, people, they, just kind of these dead bodies have just vanished. Hmm. So I was wondering. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a question for you. And we know that aliens don't have eyes, right? So the question is, how do they see? Yeah, that's a good question. See, let's see, but this is what we're talking about earlier in the podcast is this is where your mind goes though. And that's, what's wonderful about this universe and these particular creatures is that they are so mysterious. Yes. They you always want to know more. They must have super heightened senses. And maybe I'll just have to do more research to f- answer some of these questions because I'm sure they're out there. So here's a big question. I'll just throw this out there real quick. Who's the best synthetic? So we've got Ash, Bishop, Call, or David. No, I'm still going with Bishop. Yeah. He's definitely the most likable. Yeah, Call's in fourth place. Yeah. And then, yeah, I don't know where I would go between David and Ash. I, to be honest, I think David is the highlight in the prequels and uh, Prometheus. And that is true. But I loved 
the reveal of Ash in Alien because, I mean, you had no freaking clue. That was awesome. Right. And the thing is with Ash in Alien, what is really impactful for me is his, it's almost profound in the way that not only does he decide that the aliens are the superior race, species, but when Ripley gets the best of alien, well, basically Yafet Koto comes in, I believe, to save the day, it kind of saves and ends up beating the crap out of Ash and knocking his head off. Yep. And they prop his head up on a table and plug him back in. And Ash is talking about the alien and basically says, it's a killing machine. It's the perfect organism and has this profound respect for it. I just always found that like, and I think Ian Holmes is a wonderful actor. Yeah. So very spooky. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's tough. The thing is, I just, you know, have this nostalgic attachment to Bishop and I, he had a likability about him. It's obviously kind of a strangeness too, but I, I missed him after he was going, like when the franchise continued on. Yeah. I always hoped he would come back. Yeah. He kind of comes back in the alien versus predator as the original creator, but yeah. As Waylon. Right. Yeah. Doesn't work as well. Yeah. Anywho, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there. I'll save the big questions for our second podcast on aliens. All right. Um, so that wraps it up for part one of our special two-part aliens episode. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week to discuss the director's cut of aliens, facts and trivia, Swiss cheese, and the complaint department. As always, please subscribe and rate us. You can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook at All 80s Movies Podcast or tweet us at Podcast All 80s. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Game over, man. Good night, world. <laughs>